everybody, thanks again for joining us and uh, for being part of today's SCF Online. Remember these uh, Viewmasters. I had one of these when I was a kid and uh, man, I really, I really enjoyed it. Um, I remember uh, having um, the Flintstones on one of these reels and you know, you look through, you click through the pictures and you get a, a story. Had uh, one with dinosaurs, one with the Jetsons, uh, I had a, a crush on Jane Jetson when I was a kid, um, but the images on these Viewmasters were really incredible. Uh, 3D images, so they would just like pop out uh, at you. And uh, so what we're doing in this series of talks that we're calling Finding Jesus in the Old Testament, we want to we look at the Old Testament and see Jesus pop off the page. Uh, almost like a 3D image in a Viewmaster. And so, in a sense, we want to look at the Old Testament, not, not through a Viewmaster, but man, we want to look at the Old Testament, read the Old Testament, and view the Master. We want to see Jesus there. He says the whole thing, the whole Old Testament is all about him, that he shows up on uh, every page. And so, um, in this series, we, we started on week one, uh, looking in Genesis chapter one and seeing Jesus, the God of creation. We saw that Jesus is the word of God that calls all things into existence. Then on week two, um, we looked in Genesis chapter three, specifically at verse 15, and we saw that Jesus is the God of peace. And we kind of get there in a bit of a roundabout way, because in Genesis 3, uh, no sooner have Adam and Eve sinned, they've messed up, than God provides hope in Genesis 3.15. It's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. And uh, so in Genesis 3.15, God says, uh, here's hope. There is going to be one who uh, will be born of a woman, the seed of woman, uh, which, is a, which is an unusual thing. It, it kind of breaks with Hebraic protocol. It would have been more typical to refer to the seed of the man, but you know, God is telling us there's going to be one who's going to have an unusual birth. He's going to be born where the seed of the woman is emphasized rather than the seed of the man. And this one who will be born, well, he'll crush the head of the serpent. And uh, so we know that Jesus ultimately defeated Satan at the cross, crushed his uh, head, as it were. But in a practical sense, Satan continues to uh, deceive, to manipulate, uh, to lie. And so there is a practical sense in which this crushing of the enemy continues. And we learn in uh, Romans chapter 16 that uh, Jesus wants to partner with you and me, the church, to finish that crushing off. And that happens as we follow Jesus, the God of peace. As we pursue peace, we, the church, crush the head of the enemy in a practical way. Jesus, the God of peace, he's all about reconciliation of relationships. He's all about forgiveness, all about mercy, all about unity. And so as we pursue those things, forgiveness, unity, uh, mercy, and so on, we crush the head of the enemy as we follow Jesus, the, the God of peace. 
Then last week, we looked at Jesus, the God who stoops. And, uh, you know, as we think about Jesus in the New Testament, it's pretty easy to see him as the God who stoops. Um, Jesus left the glory of heaven. He came to this fallen, uh, sin-filled world. That's a stoop. That's stepping down into this fallen human framework. Uh, He stooped. He was born in a barn, born in abject poverty, raised in obscurity in Nazareth. He came, he said, to serve. Uh, He came humbly as, as a servant. He washed the feet of the disciples. He loved sinners tax collectors, prostitutes. See, Jesus, as God in his stooping, uh, was willing to appear less beautiful than he really was and willing to risk being misunderstood, which he was. And he went to the cross and he died a, um, a criminal's death. But in his stooping, he he. Uh, accommodated us, grabbed onto us, and helped us to see his plan of redemption, uh, the love of the Father most clearly seen at the cross. Jesus is the God who stoops. But God has always stooped, right from Genesis 3. He's the God who stoops. He's a God who stoops and steps into this fallen human framework to, to grab onto us sinful humanity to move us forward in his redemptive plan. We talked um, last week about um, some specific ways that God has stooped, just as as uh, illustration. We talked about uh, the fact that God never wanted a temple. That was never his heart, never his plan. Uh, The temple was David's idea, and David was insistent time after time after time with God saying, I want to build you a temple. And God continually said, no, 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 no. Finally, uh, David's insistence um, netted a okay from God. All right, okay, let's go with this. And so... um, You know, God stooped and stepped and accommodated David in his stubbornness and in his refusal to really sense the heart and the will of God in this. God never wanted a temple, but God said, okay. And when God says, okay, he doesn't just say, okay, passively. He says, okay, actively, and he jumps in with both feet. And you read the New Testament or the Old Testament rather, and you see the temple is very prominent and it's, it's prominent in the New Testament as well. But God blessed the temple and used the temple, but he did so grieved because it wasn't his heart, wasn't his plan. It's an accommodation to stay in relationship with people and move them forward in his redemptive plan. The same can be said about uh, human kings of Israel. God never wanted Israel to have a human king. He wanted to be their only king. And so the the people of Israel in their sinfulness and in their stubbornness um, demanded time after time after time that God give them a king like the other nations. They would go to Samuel the prophet and say, Samuel, give us a king like all of the other nations. And all the while God would say no. And Samuel said, no, God is your king. God's the only king that we need. But they demanded a king like the other nations. And finally God said to Samuel, 
give them what they want. He said, okay. And when God says, okay, he jumps in with both feet. He does not say, okay, passively. He says, okay, actively. And so uh, God jumped in. He embraced this uh, sinful, uh, stubborn, resistant nation and accommodated them in their desire for a human king, gave them what they want so that he could stay in relationship and move them forward. And God used kings and he blessed kings and he anointed kings. God chose David to be king, really prefiguring um, the arrival of Messiah. But all the while, his heart was broken, grieved, because kings were not his heart, not his way. The same can be said for the violence of the Old Testament. So last week we asked the question, um, how do we see Jesus in the violence of the Old Testament? Is God violent? Is Jesus violent? Is Jesus okay with violence? Well, the violence in the Old Testament similarly is an accommodation of God. It's God stooping and stepping into this fallen human framework and, and um, holding this erring, sinful, violent, warring nation with all of their violent impulses and holding them and accommodating them in their violence and God uh, using that violence to, uh, to work out his punishment and to work out his blessing and to, to move his redemptive plan forward and to move the people forward till they ultimately could see his love, his way of love, the better way of love. God's heart is not violence. God is not violent. He is a God of peace. But in his accommodation of this warring, violent people, God was willing to appear less beautiful than he really is, willing to risk being misunderstood, which he regularly is. But his heart was broken, grieved. Violence is not his way. God's heart is not human kings for Israel. God's heart is not the temple. God's heart is not violence. These are accommodations of a God who stoops and steps into this fallen human framework to move us forward in his redemptive plan. And uh, the God who stoops is seen nowhere more clearly than it is in Jesus at the cross. And uh, what we want to do today um, is we're going to look at we're going to look at Psalm 22. Pastor Dave read that for us. And um, I, I should just say that in this series, what we're doing is we're taking um, various passages from the Old Testament, but we're using them really as just representative of how it is that Jesus wants us to look at the whole Old Testament. And so today, as we, as we look at Psalm 22, uh, we're going to look at Jesus, the God who feels. We want to look at Psalm 22 uh, and see Jesus. We want to look at Psalm 22 through a Jesus lens. And um, Psalm 22 begins um, with a pretty familiar uh, line. Psalm 22, one says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is um, very familiar to us because we know that Jesus says those exact same words from the cross. Jesus on the cross literally says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so um, that raises some questions for us. Um, here's one uh, question. Was Jesus 
actually forsaken by God in that moment. So Jesus is on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was Jesus literally forsaken in that moment on the cross? Um, there is a, um, I would say, a large percentage of the evangelical church that would say yes to that question, that Jesus was actually forsaken by God, that Jesus on the cross, when he became sin for us, that God turned away from his son, um, uh, separated himself, distanced himself, literally forsook his son, turned the other way, arms folded as Jesus became sin for us. It's part of a, uh, a theory of atonement. Uh, certainly atonement you know, is, is a core belief in the evangelical world that at the cross atonement at one meant is achieved between God and human beings. That happens at the cross. But specifically how atonement happens, well, there's a, a few theories kind of all within the realm of orthodoxy. One uh, very popular theory of atonement particularly in the Western Hemisphere, not popular in the Eastern Hemisphere, strangely enough, is a theory called um, penal substitution. Uh, it's been around a long time. It really kind of found its origin at the time of the Reformation. And basically, it's a, a, a theory of atonement that says God is, uh, God is a God of wrath, and uh, he has wrath against uh, sin. And so the wrath of God must be satisfied. And so God takes all the sin of humanity, pours it on Jesus, and then vents all of his wrath on Jesus so that the satisfaction uh, can be experienced by God. So this view says that um, what happened at the cross changed God. It satisfied his wrath and that in that moment he turned away from his son, that the Godhead, the Trinity, was literally separated, that Jesus was literally forsaken in that moment. It's, it's, a, it's a popular uh, theory of atonement. It makes its way into lots of the modern day worship songs that we sing, particularly here in the West. Like I say, this theory of uh, of atonement, of penal substitution, doesn't so much uh, translate into the East. Um, was Jesus actually forsaken? Personally, I don't believe so. Um, the theory of penal substitution, um, I can see where it comes from in Scripture, but I don't think the Bible teaches it clearly. I don't think Jesus was literally forsaken by God. You might say, well, if, if he wasn't literally forsaken, then where was God uh, during that cross scene? If he wasn't off, distanced, separated, forsaking, turning uh, his back and folding his arms, uh, where was he? Well, I think Paul helps us to have a sense of where God was in that moment. Paul says, I think it's in 2 Corinthians 5, um, God was in Christ reconciling the world. Was Jesus actually forsaken by God? I don't think so. Uh, but 
You know, did Jesus feel forsaken by God in that moment? Absolutely. Absolutely. David, on, in, in Psalm 22, 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was David forsaken by God? No, he wasn't. Did he feel forsaken by God? Absolutely, he did. And, um, you know, the psalm, Psalm 22 starts off kind of bleak, kind of hopeless. But as Pastor Dave mentioned, uh, as you read through the psalm, you get little glimpses of hope. Um, when you finally uh, get to, to verse 24, there's like a, a, a really sharp right turn into hope. Uh, you know, David has started off this psalm saying, God, I don't know uh, why, but clearly you're not here. Why have you left me? Why have you forsaken me? But as you keep reading, you get these glimmers of hope, and then you get to verse 24, and man, there's a, there's a really hard right turn in the direction of hope. In fact, here's what David says in, in verse 24. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. So David, you know, starting off in this psalm, it's been like, God, you, why do you despise me? Why do you scorn my suffering? Why are you hiding your face from me? Why aren't you listening to me? But he gets to this point in verse 24 and says, you know, that's how I felt. You know, I felt forsaken. I felt like you weren't listening. I felt abandoned, but here's what I know to be true. You haven't abandoned me. You don't despise me. You do listen to me. You do love me. You are with me. That's how I felt, but here's what I know uh, to be true. It's like David saying, I may feel at times like you have forsaken me, but the reality that I know is that you haven't. Let me read that again. I may feel at times like you have forsaken me, but the reality that I know is that you haven't. And you know what? Maybe that, maybe that describes your journey today. Maybe even right now. Maybe as you're tracking with this uh, SCF online you are feeling uh, forsaken by God. Maybe this is you. Maybe this is a last-ditch effort for you to try and, and find some, some hope. Maybe you, in your journey right now, are feeling forgotten and forsaken by God. And maybe if not right now, maybe you can remember a time um, when you felt forsaken. Maybe you remember a time when you could have said with David and with Jesus, God, why have you forsaken me? And maybe, maybe you didn't use those exact words, but those words kind of uh, really described how you felt in your heart. You felt forsaken by God. God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you, God? Why have you left me now when I need you the most? Why have you disappeared? One of the things that... Um, I think really comes through in Psalm 22 in a powerful way um, is, is, um, is, is an awareness of the nature of suffering, the nature of intense suffering, the nature of deep 
hurt, particularly if that suffering and that hurt is uh, prolonged in uh, any kind of ways. Intense suffering and deep hurt, particularly when it's ongoing, can cripple us in a number of ways. But one of the ways that it can cripple us is it can cripple our ability to sense God's love. It can cripple our capacity to feel loved by God. And when you're in that place of feeling forsaken, when your hurt and your pain has crippled your capacity to feel the love of God, well, then it just feels like when you pray, your prayers are just kind of bouncing off the ceiling and not getting anywhere. But that feeling is not um, tuning you into reality. That feeling, that pain that you're experiencing, that, um, that suffering that you're experiencing, particularly if it's protracted, um, interferes with your spiritual antenna. Remember, remember rabbit ears on, on TVs, on TVs. And we used to, you know, adjust those to try and get uh, clear reception. Well, think of yourself as having uh, spiritual rabbit ears, intense pain, deep pain, particularly if it's ongoing can mess with your spiritual rabbit ears and they can kind of look like this. Are they out of order, right? Pain can do that. Pain will mess with your spiritual rabbit ears. Abuse can do that. Um, intense suffering can do that. Abandonment can do that. And so, you know, this, this journey of David um, it, through Psalm 22, man, it's, it's um, like it's a powerful reminder for us that, and, 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 and it's hopeful that maybe we're at a place where we're saying, God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Why have you just disappeared? Why have you left the building? Why have you disappeared when I need you most? That we can go from there to, okay, that's how I felt, but here's what I know. I know you haven't left me. I know you do love me. I know you are with me. I know that you are for me. I know that you are, are suffering with me. I know that you're right by my side. And that God, as I, you know, as I feel distant from you, I know that that says nothing about you and it says everything about me and it's because of the pain that I'm in right now. Let me, um, I wanna offer this as encouragement to you and I hope you receive it as encouragement because if you're in a place right now in your life where this, you know, this journey of David is your, is your journey, you're feeling forsaken, abandoned, if you are feeling forsaken by God today, I want you to know that you are feeling what Jesus felt on the cross. If you are feeling abandoned by God, forgotten, forsaken by God, at this point in your life, you are feeling what Jesus felt on the cross. Which means that when you pray, you are praying to a God who understands what it feels like when God is distant. You are praying to a God who knows what it feels like to feel 
like you've been abandoned by God. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Pastor Dave, as he was reading scripture and then led us in prayer, he said in his prayer, and I wrote this down, he said, Jesus knows what we're going through. And then Pastor Dave prayed, you, Jesus, are more than aware you have experienced it and lived it and know it. Jesus knows how you feel. He's been there. He's lived it. He's cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Feeling forsaken? You're feeling what Jesus felt on the cross. And so when you pray, you pray to a God who knows what that feels like, who knows what it feels like to feel forsaken. And so the journey for David in Psalm 22, where he goes from, God, why have you forsaken me to, that's how I felt, but here's what I know. I know you haven't forsaken me. I know you are listening to me. I know you do love me and you are uh, with me. Similarly, on the cross, Jesus goes from, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like, that's not the final word of Jesus from the cross. Luke uh, actually records the final words of Jesus from the cross. And this is Luke 24, 46. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, uh, he breathed his last. And so just like David goes from, God, why have you forsaken me? You know, to, to say, well, that, that's how I felt. But here's what I know to be true. You are with me. You do love me. And Jesus goes from, God, why have you forsaken me? To, Father, I trust you. And into your hands, I commit my spirit. So be, be encouraged today. Christian, I want you to know that God is with you. He does love you, even if you're not feeling it. Even if your spiritual rabbit ears are out of order because of the pain that you're experiencing, because of the suffering that you're going through, God is with you and he does love you. I want to look at just a few more things from um, Psalm 22. This is verse 6. And so David says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. And, and I, I, uh, look at, I, I look at this verse with you uh, right now, not so much because of the Jesus lens thing, but uh, whenever I see a verse of scripture like this, I always want to take the opportunity to remind people, to remind all of us that when we read the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, to read it literally. To read the Bible literally means to read it as literature. So read the Bible literally. Do not read the Bible literalistically. To read this verse literalistically is to actually see David as a worm. It would be like, oh my gosh, David, somebody turned you into a worm. Who was it? Was it Satan? I bet it was Satan. You know, we, we might 
kind of chuckle at the absurdity of that, but there are people who are not initiated to, to the scripture nor to uh, faith in Jesus who might read literalistically and say, oh, David got turned into a worm. How stupid is that? That's why I don't trust the Bible. That's why I don't read it. Um, so we want to read the scripture literally. And so we want to, uh, you know, we want to recognize what, um, what genre we're reading at any one time. So here is David. He's journaling his feelings in very poetic fashion uh, using appropriate poetic license. This is poetry. So we want to understand that we want to read it as poetry. We don't want to read it literalistically. You read literalistically, you're trying to always make everything stand on all four legs all the time, regardless of the literary genre. So when you're reading, particularly in the Old Testament, ask yourself, okay, what genre am I reading? Is this poetry? Is this history? Uh, is this uh, uh, wisdom literature? Like pithy little statements, uh, like in uh, Proverbs, for instance, is this uh, prophetic or apocalyptic literature? We need to know what genre we're reading so that we can read literally, read it as literature, uh, applying the, um, the appropriate kinds of um, uh, ways of, of uh, reading that particular uh, type of literature. So we want to read the Psalms as poetry. And so we want to read, you know, Psalm 22 as almost like reading the journal of a poet. And David is a poet and, and the Psalms are like his journal. So we want to read it that way. So read the Bible literally, not literalistically. Read it literally as literature. Here's another thing from Psalm 22. This is verses seven and eight. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. So looking through a Jesus lens, okay, we want to see Jesus here in Psalm 22. Um, we can see that these are the exact same things that the people who were enemies of Jesus standing around the cross as Jesus is hanging on the cross. These are the very things they were saying right? Uh, let the Lord rescue him. You say you're the Messiah? Well, you know, um, uh, prove it. Uh, prove that God has not abandoned you. Call on God to rescue you and then come flying off that cross and crush your enemies. You know, Jesus, we're doing you a favor by nailing you to this cross. It's giving you opportunity to, to show that God is, is, has not abandoned, that God is with you and you can show yourself powerful, but there you are just hanging there. You look rather powerless. It seems like God has in fact abandoned you and uh, it looks like you're getting exactly what you deserve. So... These things that David says here really are the same things that were said uh, to Jesus at the cross. Here's verse uh, 14. David says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. You know, just, just in reading that, you can see the pain. You can see the, the deep, deep suffering that David is experiencing. And he, he mentions his bones that they're all out of joint. Notice that he doesn't say his bones are broken. He says they're out of joint, right? So Jesus lens, we wanna see Jesus here. We wanna look at this through a Jesus lens. And so we're reminded um, in John's gospel, John 
takes the time to specifically point out that during the crucifixion, no bones in Jesus' body were broken. Now, it was very, very common for people who were crucified to have broken bones, particularly to have broken legs. But John is careful to point out that that was indeed not the case with Jesus in his crucifixion. None of his bones were broken. And then we think, okay, back to the book of Exodus in chapter 12, where it's described um, uh, how the Passover lamb is to be prepared and none of its bones were to be broken. And then, you know, Jesus lens, Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians 5 says that Jesus is our Passover lamb. And so here, even in his death, although his joints may have been, you know, torn apart. His bones were not broken. Here's uh, verse 16. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Okay, uh, Jesus lends again. What is the deal with this piercing my hands and my feet? We don't know of any um, instance in the life of David where he's uh, captured, like in, in this context in Psalm 22, he's fleeing for his life. Uh, King Saul and Saul's cronies who hate David are out to kill David. They are literally hunting him. And uh, we don't know of any situation where David gets captured and they poke holes in his hands and his feet. So what, you know, what is going on here? It's almost as if David in Psalm 22, as he's describing his own pain, as he's describing its own, his own suffering, it's almost like he begins to kind of channel Jesus. It's almost like he begins to um, kind of like to reach forward hundreds of years and to to, to grab onto the suffering of Jesus and to pull that back and to describe it in terms of his own suffering and his own um, pain that he's going through. It's kind of like he's, he's tuning in, and I think I'm not saying that he's aware of this, but he's, it's like uh, he's tuning in to um, things that are hundreds of years in the future and the pulling them back and describing them as part of his own experience. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Uh, here's verse uh, 17 and 18. David says, all my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. <laughs> Jesus lends, that's a, that's a pretty obvious one, right? Because this happens at the crucifixion. Uh, Jesus on the cross is naked, he's on display. People stared and gloated. Uh, the soldiers at the cross literally take the clothing of Jesus and gamble for it um, while Jesus hangs on the cross with, with pierced hands and pierced feet. Here's verses uh, 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. So again, you can you can you, you you track this journey of David in Psalm 22. He starts off, God, why have you forsaken me? Then he gets to the point of saying, I know you haven't forsaken me. I know you do love me. I know you are here. I know you're with me. I know that you're you're hearing me. 
And then he moves forward to this, you know, this uh, scene that, man, this is, um, it's bigger than just something to do with the nation of Israel. This is, this is all the nations. This is Jews and Gentiles coming together and, and uh, worshiping and bowing down before the Lord. And so, you know, Jesus lends, this is exactly the mission of Jesus. Jew and Gentile together, uh, one people of God in Christ. All right, so Psalm 22, we've, I think we can see how the, the sufferings of Jesus, or the sufferings of David, rather, I think we can see how the sufferings of, of David in Psalm 22 are kind of representing the sufferings of Jesus. And as we look at both the sufferings of David and the sufferings of Jesus on the cross, there is hope for us. There's hope that we too, like David, like Jesus, can move from, God, why have you forsaken me? To, Father, I trust you. And into your hands, I commit my spirit. Here at, um, here at Sobel Church, we have a vision statement, and uh, it's three parts. We want to know God, become like Jesus, and change our world. Know God, become like Jesus, and change our world. That second part says we want to become like Jesus. Jesus is our example. That is discipleship 101. That is a very, very basic thing. Jesus is our example. Now, the church, uh, not speaking of Sobel Church, but the church in general, the church in general for hundreds of years has rejected the example of Jesus and has rather said, uh, God in general is our example. And so we can do anything God does on any page of scripture we can do because God in general is our example. And so um, witch burning, you know, uh, there have been times in church history where the church has participated in witch burning that comes from the Bible. The church has at times participated in capital punishment for theological heresy, which comes from the Bible. There have been spans of time where the church has participated in violence, in war, killing people in the name of God. It comes from the Bible. You see, when you just follow God in general, without distilling it down into the clarity of Jesus, well, you can, you know, you can go off in all kinds of really weird uh, directions and some pretty uh, horrific things can happen. And so the church has done that for hundreds of years. Uh, it's gone on way too long. So as Anabaptists, I'm not saying we, 
we always get it right. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying we have any kind of a corner on truth because we certainly don't. But one thing I do think we get right is we say specifically that Jesus is our example. We want to become like Jesus. Our vision statement doesn't say know God and become like God in general. No, specifically, we want to become like Jesus. Jesus is our example. So we say that specifically as Anabaptists, we don't simply say, well, you know, the Bible is our book and God in general is our example. No, we say specifically, we, we follow Jesus. We are Christians. We are um, little Christs, which is what that means. We're not Bibleians. We're not little Bibles. We don't follow the Bible. We read the Bible so that we can follow Jesus. We don't say we're Godians, uh, little gods. No, we're not, um, you know, uh, we follow Jesus. Jesus is our example. And Jesus, as our example, even as we've seen Jesus, you know, um, in Psalm 22, we've seen the sufferings of Jesus there, pictured in the sufferings of David. But we, you know, we've also seen Jesus in the Gospels, and we've, you know, we've we've thought about his journey on the cross even today. He's our example, and so his example is one of suffering love. The example of Jesus is of one who stoops, one who is willing to set aside his own rights for the sake of others. The example of Jesus is the example of of upside-down power, the example of sacrificial love. Jesus is our example. I want to close um, with with four questions, and um, they're going to be on the screen here, and I'm basically just going to read them, and then we'll just sit with them for like 10 seconds or so. And as we look at these four questions, and I'm going to ask myself these questions, and I want you to ask yourself these questions. Um, let's ask the Spirit of God just to, to speak to us and to, you know, be active, kind of, kind of alerting us um, to how He wants us to cooperate with Him in relation to these, these four questions. So here's the first one. Who should you be serving by laying down your own rights or impulse for self? Again, we're talking about following Jesus. He's our example. So who should you be serving by laying down your own rights or impulse for self? This is the way of Jesus, the way of laying down my rights to serve myself. I'm laying those rights down and I'm moving towards others. Let's just sit with this for a few seconds. And, and Holy Spirit, would you, would you help us speak to us right now? Here's the second question. Whose suffering do you need to stop avoiding and instead enter into? See, the way of Jesus, the example of Jesus is to move toward, not away from, but toward the suffering of others. Let's just sit with this for a few seconds. And again, Spirit of God, just speak to us, alert us here.
Third question, what habit, trait, or attitude do you have that opposes the way of Jesus? And again, Holy Spirit, would you, would you um, be active in, in, in pointing these things out to us? And question number four, in what way do you need to push past what you're feeling in the moment and embrace what it is you know to be true? In other words, maybe right now what you're feeling is, God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Now that I need you most, where have you gone? And so how do we push past how we feel in the moment to grab hold of what we know to be true, to grab hold by faith of what we know to be true, that, God, you are trustworthy, and into your hands I can commit my life, that you are with me, you do love me, you haven't abandoned me, you've not forsaken, you've not left me, you're right here with me. Let's just sit with that for a second. In what way do you need to push past what you're feeling in the moment and embrace what you know to be true? We've seen that in the journey of David in Psalm 22. We've seen it in the journey of Jesus on the cross, pushing past how we feel in the moment and embracing by faith what we know to be true. Let's pray. God, we confess that there are times where our pain messes with our capacity to feel your love. And so in those moments, we feel forgotten, we feel alone. Would you help us to push past how we feel in the moment and to claim by faith what we know to be true, that your love for us never fails, it never runs out, that you never leave us and you never forsake us. We're so thankful for the Psalms and for the honest journaling of a poet in pain. And thank you that in the suffering of David, we see Jesus. And thank you that in both the journey of David and the journey of Jesus on the cross, that there is hope for us. There's encouragement to carry on, knowing that you're trustworthy and knowing that you're good, knowing that we can commit our lives into your hands. Lord Jesus, thank you for your example. May your love compel us. May we choose to follow you, to love like you, to serve like you, to move toward the sufferings of others rather than to look the other way. We want to become like Jesus so that we can change our world, seeing the kingdom move forward. Amen.